0: Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Those are some scary words. I don't want the Lord to say to me, woe, W-O-E. I don't want him to say woe to me either, like stop the horse, (laughs) woe. I want him to say, go, go. But what I really don't want is for him to say, woe, W-O-E, over me. It means that you're in big trouble if he says that. These shepherds were in dire straits. They were in dangerous ground. Jeremiah delivers to them this word, woe. Because, he says, because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord, woe. I do not want to be in their shoes. Who are these bad shepherds? He's not talking here about literal shepherds, sheep herders, like the ones that came to see baby Jesus. This is not literal. This is a metaphor. Shepherd here is a metaphor for the kings of the nation of Judah. The kings. While Jeremiah has prophesied against the whole nation of of Judah as they have forsaken their covenant with Yahweh, he has also focused on the bad leaders that have taken Judah down these wrong paths, these bad shepherds. Prophets, priests, and kings. Last time, we learned about a bad priest, Pasher, son of Immer. Next time, we'll find out more about the bad prophets in chapter 23. But today in chapters 21 and 22 especially, the Lord speaks directly to the evil failures of the last several kings of Judah by name. We learned back in April that Jeremiah prophesied before the exile during the reigns of the last five kings of Judah. Extra credit if you can name them. Can anybody do it? I couldn't. Not until I studied it this week. Here they are, up on the screen. Chapter three actually only names three or chapter one, verse three, only names three of them, probably because two of them only reigned for three months, each. They, you hardly had a king before he was gone. Here are their names: Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Now, they all actually had more than one name. They had personal names, but these were their royal names. Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Now, do you remember the thumbs up or the thumbs down for the kings when we studied the books of Kings, first and second Kings? How many thumbs-up kings were there in the northern kingdom of Israel? None, right? There were absolutely no thumbs-up kings up in in Israel. But in the south, there were some thumbs-up kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. How about these five guys? Anybody remember their scorecard? Let me give you a little hint. This sermon is entitled, Woe to the Shepherds, meaning the kings of Judah. Well, Josiah is actually thumbs up. In fact, he's two thumbs up. He was the last thumbs up king of, of Judah. Josiah discovered the book of the law and tried to reform Judah according to it. He was the king when Jeremiah started his ministry. But these other guys? Jehoahaz? Jehoiakim? Jehoiachin? Zedekiah? Thumbs down. And that's what these chapters are about. They're like an autopsy. A post-mortem examination of what went wrong with these bad shepherds, these bad kings. So that you and I can learn from their failures. I've only got two points to make this morning of application. And here's the first one. It's really pretty simple. Don't be like the bad shepherds. Don't be like them. Don't fall into the traps that got them that word woe spoken over them by the Lord. Don't be like the bad shepherds. So let's see what they did wrong. In chapter 21, we actually flash forward to the ending. That's Jeremiah for you, right? He jumps around. We start with the last king to sit on the throne of Judah. That's King Zedekiah. His personal name was Mattaniah, And he ruled from 597 to 597 to 586 B.C. And this chapter that we're going to read, chapter 21, actually takes place around 588 B.C., just just two years before the end of his reign and the end of the nation of Judah itself. And guess what Zedekiah is doing in 588 B.C.? Anybody got a guess? He's asking the prophet Jeremiah for help might not have seen that one coming. Look with me at chapter 21, verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent him to sent to him Pasher, son of Malchijah, and the prophet, and the priest Zephaniah, son of Maaseiah. They said, Inquire now of the Lord for us, because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us as in times past so that he will withdraw from us. Now stop there for just a second. Do you get the picture? Do you get the time frame where we are? This is sometime later than the events we've been studying the last few weeks in chapters 18, 19, and 20. Jeremiah, the the book jumps around chronologically. It's probably been several years, maybe more than a decade since Jeremiah smashed The jar, okay? This Pasher is not the same Pasher as last week, different dads. And this Zephaniah is not the prophet from the minor prophets, but a priest by the same name. And Pasher and Zephaniah, this Pasher and Zephaniah are sent by King Zedekiah to ask the prophet Jeremiah if he would ask the Lord to do a miracle, And saved Jerusalem from Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. By the way, this is the first time that Nebuchadnezzar has actually been named so far in this book. We got to chapter 23 before his name shows up. And here's why. Because he's at the gates. He's knocking at the door. In fact, he has the city under siege. King Zedekiah had sworn fealty loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. But then made a secret alliance with Egypt and had betrayed Nebuchadnezzar and then rebelled against him, and it has not gone well for him. Nebuchadnezzar's knocking at his door, and Zedekiah is looking for a way out, any way out. And he thought, Jeremiah. Well, ask Jeremiah. It turns out that he he loves to ask Jeremiah for advice. He just never takes it. But at this time, he asked Jeremiah not just for advice, but for prayers, He asked him to inquire to see if the Lord might have another miracle up his sleeve. Like he used to. Is the Lord in the miracle business? Yes, he is. Has he ever saved Israel? When there was an enemy at the gates? Yeah. I mean, Zedekiah's ancestor. Wasn't that long ago that Zedekiah's ancestor, Hezekiah, prayed a very similar prayer? And at nighttime, the Lord wiped out an entire army. Like 186,000 waiting at the gates. The next day they were free. And Zedekiah says, Hey, Jeremiah, would you ask the Lord if he would do that again? And Jeremiah sends back this answer. No. No, it's too late. The clay was too hard. And now it's time for the smash. Verse 3. But Jeremiah answered them, tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I am about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you're using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you. And I will gather them inside this city. I myself will fight against you. With an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in anger and fury and great wrath, I will strike down those who live in this city, both men and animals, and they will die of a terrible plague. And that declares the Lord. After that declares the Lord, I will hand over Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, and the people in this city who survived the plague, sword, and famine, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to their enemies who seek their lives. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity Or compassion oh man wow it's worse than you think Zedekiah not only am I not going to fight for you I'm gonna fight against you every other time in the Bible when it says with his outstretched hand and his mighty arm it's to save but now it's to smash And you yourself are going to die. Woe to the shepherd, Zedekiah. Jeremiah does have some advice, however, for the people of Judah. And that's surrender. Verse 8. Furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I'm setting before you the way of life and the way of death. That sound familiar? Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. He'll escape with his life. I have determined to do this city harm and not good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon and he will destroy it with fire. Your only chance to survive is surrender. Oh boy, did Pasher and Zephaniah hate it when he said that. We're going to see how they reacted when we get up to chapters 37 and 38. And there's another flashback to this moment. They thought that what Jeremiah was saying was treason. But it was actually just good sense and faithfulness. Because the Lord had decided that Jerusalem was going up in flames. And that's exactly what happened. And we can't comprehend really what it was like. Read the book of Lamentations to see just how it made them feel. But the question here is why? Why did Yahweh respond to Zedekiah in this way? Look at verse 11. Moreover, say to the royal house of Judah, say to Zedekiah, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. This is what the Lord says. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of his oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. I'm against you, Jerusalem. You who live above this valley on the rocky plateau, declares the Lord. You who say, who can come against us? Who can enter our refuge? I will punish you as your deeds deserve, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in your forest that will consume everything around you. Zedekiah failed to administer justice every morning. He had one job. You have one job, Zedekiah. Keep the covenant, lead the people to worship the Lord alone and follow his commandments. You're the king. If you see that someone is robbed, then rescue them from the hand of their oppressor. Administer justice every morning. That's what you're supposed to do. And Zedekiah, you're you're not doing it. Instead, you're trusting in how Jerusalem was situated so well for natural defense. Look how high up we are. And you're trusting in all of the wrong things like having the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Verse 13, who can come against us? Who can enter our refuge? We're sitting pretty. Well, not if the Lord is against you, you aren't. This morning we sang in the new song, he's for me, not against me. What glorious truth that is for us. Just think about the opposite. Not that the Lord is indifferent to you, but against you. That's what judgment is. That's what hell is. Woe to you, shepherd Zedekiah. Now in chapter 22, it jumps back again in time. It jumps from Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, to just after the last good king of Judah, Josiah, and then goes down from there through the others. Look with me at chapter 22, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah. You who sit on David's throne, you, your officials, and your people who come through these gates. Now, just think about that for a second. This assignment. How dangerous is this for Jeremiah, I mean? The Lord tells Jeremiah not just to go to the potter's house, not just to go to the linen belt store, or even to the temple complex, but he sends Jeremiah down to the palace of the king of Judah himself and puts a fiery message in his mouth. This is a dangerous mission, but Jeremiah obeys. And what message does he deliver to the shepherds of Judah? What does God want to say to them? Look at verse 3. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. That is so important. It's so basic. But it's so important. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of his oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you're careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. This has been the message now for, well, it's been the message for all of Jeremiah's ministry. But for hundreds of years, he's been saying this. We see here what the Lord cares about, don't we? What's on his heart. Do you see how much he cares about justice? Do what is just and right. Because of who the Lord is, right? Remember chapter 9? Let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. This is his heart. And it's also the Lord's vision for leadership. If you're in leadership, in any area of life, in your home, in your community, in your workplace, in your society... This is what he's looking for in a leader. Someone who does what is just and right. And he says, watches out for the little guy. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, meaning the immigrant. The fatherless or the widow, that is the, the vulnerable. Those who don't have many rights or money or power. He says, and do not shed innocent blood. The Lord loves justice and righteousness, and it was the king's job to administer it. And if they did, then wonders of wonders, there would be blessing. But if they didn't, and they didn't, their palace would become a ruin. Verse 6, for this is what the Lord says about the palace of the king of Judah, Though you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, beautiful forest places like central Pennsylvania, I will surely make you like a desert, like towns not inhabited. I will send destroyers against you, each man with his weapons, and they will cut up your fine cedar beams and throw them into the fire. Did you ever think about that? You remember that palace that Solomon built for himself out of the cedars of Lebanon? I read about it in my Bible reading this last week in 1 Kings chapter 7. It was a beautiful house made of cedar. Just imagine what that looked like, okay? It wasn't just a cedar-lined chest or a cedar-lined closet, right? It was a cedar-built house, huge. He took twice as long to build his house as he did the temple, which was the most glorious, it was the wonder of the world at that time. And the Lord said here that He was going to turn that house into firewood. Verse 8. People from many nations will pass by this burning city and will ask one another, why has the Lord done such a thing to this great city? And the answer will be, because they've forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and have worshipped and served other gods. They only had one job, but they refused to do it. They only had to be faithful to one Lord, but they were as unfaithful as a prostitute. They only had to administer justice, but they loved crookedness. And now he gets personal. He proclaims woe on King Jehoahaz, also known as King Shalem, son of Josiah. Look at verse 10. Do not weep for the dead king or mourn his loss. He means there Josiah, who was killed in the battle of 609 at Megiddo in 609 BC. Don't weep for Josiah, he says. Rather, weep bitterly for him who is exiled, because he will never return nor see his native land again. For this is what the Lord says about Shalem, son of Josiah, who succeeded his father as king of Judah, but has gone from this place. He will never return. He will die in the place where they've led him captive. He will not see this land again. Jo- <coughs> Excuse me. Josiah's son, Shalem, also known as Jehoahaz, was only, he was one of those kings that was only king for three months. Before Nebuchadnezzar carted him off into exile. And Jeremiah says that he is to be pitied more than his dead father. How come? Because his father died a two-thumbs-up king. And Shalom was a two-thumbs-down king. And exile was his punishment. Better to die with honor than to live with this shame. And then his brother took over, Eliakim, or more commonly known as King Jehoiakim. that's who verse 13 is all about woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness his upper rooms by injustice making his countrymen work for nothing not paying them for their labor basically slavery human trafficking He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. He he improves on what Solomon had made with even more cedar and vermilion. This is the palace that Zedekiah was living in in chapter 21 that's going to be burned. Jeremiah says to him, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Are you king if you got the most gold? If you're a billionaire, is that what it means to be king? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. Doesn't the Lord take care of us? He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and extortion. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my brother. Alas, my sister. Same Hebrew word for woe. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my master. Alas, his splendor. He will have the burial of a donkey. Dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. Jehoiakim ruled for 11 years. And he was basically Jeremiah's enemy. We're going to read a lot more about him and what he did over the next several months. Jehoiakim wasn't anything like his father, Josiah. He was two thumbs down. And nobody, but nobody, mourned when he died. Think about that whole... Last month, Queen Elizabeth of Great Britain died and the whole former empire mourned. Not one person was sad when Jehoiakim died. Partially because of how different he was from his father. Look more closely at what his father did right. It really shows us what a king is supposed to be like. What God really cares about. He wants how he wants us to live today. Look back up at verse 15. All Jehoiakim cared about was luxury. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Is that what's important? Did not your father, Josiah, have food and drink? He did what was right and just. Those are the same words as from verse 3, aren't they? does what's right and just. So all went well with him. Tov, good. He defended the cause of the poor and needy. So all went well. Tov, good. And then he says these words, is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. What a question. He's saying this is what it means, this is what it looks like to know God. Do you know God? If you truly know God, then you will love people. You'll be committed to what is right and just, and you will look out for the poor and the needy. How are we doing at that? Are we committed to justice? Are we committed to the poor? I love that our church partners with ministries in two of the poorest countries in the world. Vision of Hope in Haiti and Community Ministries in Malawi. We all can have different ways of working towards justice and showing compassion. There's not just one way. But we all need to be committed to it. At heart and with our hands and our feet and our wallets if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. Is that not what it means to know me? It's not Knowing Jesus is not just re- praying and reading our Bibles. It's also living out our faith. I love that our EFCA statement of faith directly addresses this in Article 8. It says, God commands us to love Him supremely and others sacrificially, and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. That's the heart of God. Is this not what it means to know Him? Or or here's how the prophet Micah said it. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We walk humbly with our God by acting justly and loving mercy. By doing what is just and right and defending the cause of the poor and needy. God says, is that not what it means to know me? Do you know God? We show it by how we treat the poor and needy. How we treat the asylum-seeking migrants at our borders. How we treat the innocent unborn in our wombs. Don't be like Jehoiakim. He wasn't interested in knowing the Lord. He was only interested in how nice his house was. And so the Lord was against him. Woe to you, shepherd, Jehoiakim. And woe to your son, Jeconiah, or Coniah for short, or his royal name, King Jehoiachin. That's the next king that's mentioned by name. He was also thumbs down. The last four kings were all thumbs down, and everybody suffered, which is the point of verse 20. Go up to Lebanon and cry out, Let your voice be heard in Bashan. Cry out from Abarim, for all your allies are crushed. I warned you when you felt secure, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth. You have not obeyed me. The wind will drive all your shepherds away. And your allies will go into exile. Then you will be ashamed and disgraced because of all of your wickedness. You who live in, quote unquote, Lebanon... Your fancy cedar house. or nestled in cedar buildings. How you will groan when pangs come upon you. Pain like that of a woman in labor. As surely as I live, declares the Lord. Even if you, Jehoachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I'll hand you over to those who seek your life, those you fear, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born, and there you will both die. You'll never come back to the land you long to return to. Just like his uncle Shalom or Jehoahaz, King Jehoachin will only reign for three months and then be sent off into exile to die there, probably in 597 B.C at the same time that the prophet Ezekiel was exiled as well. Uprooted, never to return. Verse 28. Is this man Jehoiachin a despised broken pot, an object no one wants? It looks like it. Rejected from the potter's house. Why? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? By now we know, right? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. What a sad, sad thing. Jehoiachin actually had seven sons, but not one of them would sit on the throne in Judah. And said Nebuchadnezzar would make his uncle Mattaniah a puppet king. Which brings us back to King Zedekiah. And we already saw what happened to him. Woe to you, shepherd Jehoiachin, a despised and broken pot, an object no one wants. Why? Chapter 23 Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds, attend my people, because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. Do not be like the bad shepherds. Hmm. However, Jeremiah also has good news for us today. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) The next part is actually the best and brightest paragraph in the whole book of Jeremiah so far. It's so beautiful. Jeremiah has for us today not just a word of hardness, but a word of hope. And that is that there is another shepherd coming. And this shepherd is a good shepherd. Point number two and last. Put your hope in the good shepherd. Put your hope in the good shepherd. After all that doom and gloom and darkness, verse three just beams out with light. Look at verse three. The Lord says, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and will bring them back to their, pasture where where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Oh, yes. Yahweh says, I've had some bad shepherds who did a terrible job with this flock. I'm going to blow them away like the wind, and so now I'm going to come and shepherd them myself. I'm going to grab the flock from all of those places where it's been scattered and bring them back to the green grass and the still waters of my pasture. And they will be fruitful and increase in number. That's Genesis language, isn't it? Fruitful and increase in number. Things are going to return to the way they were meant to be. My flock, he says, will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing. Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> When I was studying this this week, in the margins, when I got to these verses, I just kept writing, yes, 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 finally the good part, a day when we are not afraid or terrified, a day when nobody is lost, a day when everything is the way it was meant to be in the beginning, and even better, and what we need for that day to come is a good shepherd, and that's exactly what Yahweh is promising here. Look at verse 5, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. There's the phrase again, right? Just and right, justice. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. The Hebrew for that is Yahweh Sidkinu. It's very close to Zedekiah's name in Hebrew, which is Zedekiah. Both are based on the word for righteousness or justice. But unlike Zedekiah, this king will live up to his name. He's also going to come from the line of David. He'll be a righteous branch, a, a new growth that shoots up out of the seemingly dead stump of Jesse, to use Isaiah's language. From his book and he will save his people do you know his name oh yeah it is it's our king jesus king jesus is the good shepherd he's everything these bad shepherds were supposed to be but we're not and his salvation rescue will be even better than the salvation rescue of the exodus that's the point of the last two verses seven and eight So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. This is the shepherd that we need. Put your hope in him. Interestingly, King Jesus is a descendant of these woeful kings. He's actually related to King Jehoiachin from the end of chapter 22, the one that had seven kids, but none of them would be king. Jehoiachin had a grandson named Zerubbabel, and he never was the king, but he got to come back from exile and help to rebuild. He was the governor of Judah for a while. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that he was the great, 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 great grandfather of King Jesus. And so that though Jehoiachin dialed in exile, the righteous branch would shoot up out of his stump and be given to God's people forever. I love to think about what his kingdom will be like, don't you? Verse 5 says that he will reign wisely and do what is just and right. That's the language of chapters 21, verse 12, chapter 22, verse 3, and verse 15. He will have a heart, the heart of God, because he'll be God himself. He will love justice and righteousness. He will love and serve the vulnerable, the oppressed. And there will be no ending to the blessing of his kingdom. King Jesus said that he is the good shepherd and that he has come that we may have life and have it to the full. Put your hope in him.